Chapter 7 of Leonora by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evans. Chapter 7 The Departure. As I approach the crisis in Leonora's life, I hesitate, fearing lest by an unfit phrase I should deprive her of your sympathies, fearing also that this fear may incline me to set down less than the truth about her. She was possessed by a mysterious sensation of content. She wished to lie supine, except in her domestic affairs, and to dream that all was well, or would be well. It was as though she had determined that nothing could extinguish or even disturb the mild flame of happiness which burned placidly within her. And yet the anxieties of her existence were certainly increasing again. On the morning after the opera, John had departed on one of his sudden flying visits to London. These journeys, formerly frequent, had been in abeyance for a time, and their assumption seemed to point to some renewal of his difficulties. He had called at Church Street on his way to Knipe, and Carpenter had brought back word that Miss Myatt was wonderfully better. But when Leonora herself called at Church Street later in the morning, and at last saw Aunt Hannah, she was impressed by the change in the old creature, whose nervous system had the appearance of being utterly disorganised. Then there was the difficult case of Ethel and Fred Riley, in which Leonora had done nothing whatever. And there was the case of Rose, whose alienation from the rest of the household became daily more marked. Finally, there was the new and portentous case of Millicent, probably the most disconcerting of the three. Nevertheless, amid all these solicitudes, Leonora remained equable, optimistic, and quietly joyous. A state of mind so miraculously altered in a few hours gave her no surprise. It seemed natural. Everything seemed natural. She ceased for a period to waste emotion in the futile desire for her lost youth. On the second day after the opera, she was sitting at her Sheraton desk in the small, nondescript room which opened off the dining room. In front of her lay a large tablet with innumerable names of things printed on it in three columns. Opposite each name, a little hole had been drilled, and in many of the holes, little sticks of wood stood upright. Leonora uprooted a stick, exiling it to a long horizontal row of holes at the top of the tablet, and then wrote in a pocket book. She uprooted another stick and wrote again, so continuing till only a few sticks were left in the columns. These she spared. Then she rang the bell for the parlourmaid and relinquished to her the tablet. The peculiar rite was over. Is dinner ready? she asked, looking at the small clock which she usually carried about with her from room to room. Yes'm. Then ring the gong and tell Carpenter I shall want the trap at a quarter past two for two. I am going to shop in Hanbridge and then to meet Mr. Stanway at Knipe. We shall be in before four. Have some tea ready. And don't forget the eclairs today, Bessie. She smiled. No, m'm. Did you think I want to write about them new dog biscuits, m'm? I'll write now, said Leonora and she turned to the desk. But a gong sounded. The dinner was brought in. Through the doorway between the two rooms, there was no door, only a portiere, Leonora heard Ethel's rather heavy footsteps. I don't think Mother will want you to wait today, Bessie, Ethel's voice said. Then followed, after the maid's exit, the noise of a dish cover being lifted and dropped, and Ethel's exclamation, Huh! And then the voices of Rose and Millicent approached in altercation. Come along, mother, Ethel called out. Coming, 
answered Leonora, putting the note in an envelope. The idea, said Rose's voice scornfully. Yes, retorted Minnie's voice. The idea. Leonora listened as she wrote the address. You always were a conceited thing, Millie, and since this wonderful opera you're positively ridiculous. I almost wish I'd gone to it now just to see what you were like. Ah, oh, well, you just didn't, and so you don't know. No, indeed, I've got something better to do than watch a pack of amateurs. There was a pause for silent contempt. Well, keep it up, keep it up. Anyhow, I'm perfectly certain Father won't let you go. I shall go. And besides, I want to go to London, and you may be absolutely certain, my child, that he won't let two of us go. I shall speak to him first. Oh, no, you won't. Shan't I? You'll see. No, you won't, because it just happens that I spoke to him the night before last, and he's making inquiries, and he'll tell me tonight. So what do you think of that? Leonora drew aside the portier. My dear girls, she protested benevolently, standing there. The feud, always apt thus to leap into a perfectly Corsican fury of bitterness, sank back at once to its ordinary level of passive mutual repudiation. Rose and Millicent were not bereft of the finer feelings which distinguish humanity from the beasts of the jungle. Sometimes they could be almost affectionate. There were, however, moments when to all appearance they hated each other with a tigerish and crouching hatred, such as may be found only between two opposing feminine temperaments linked together by the family tie. What's this about your going to London, Rose? Leonora asked in a voice soothing but surprised when the meal had begun. You know, Mamma, I mentioned it to you the other day. The girl's tone implied that what she had said to Leonora perhaps went in at one ear and out at the other. Leonora remembered. Rose had, in fact, casually told her that a school friend in Oldcastle who was studying for the same examination as herself had gone to London for six weeks' final coaching under what Rose called a lady crammer. But you didn't tell me that you wanted to go as well, Leonora said. Yes, mother, I did, Rose affirmed with calm. You forget. I'm sure I shan't pass if I don't go. So I asked father while you were all at this opera affair. And what did he say? Ethel demanded. He said he would make inquiries this morning and see. Ethel gave a laugh of good-natured derision. Yes, she exclaimed, and you'll see too. In response to this oracular utterance, Rose merely bent lower over her plate. Millicent, conscious of a brilliant vocation and of an impassioned resolve, refrained from the discussion, and the sense of her ineffable superiority bore hard on that lithe, mercurial youthfulness. The signal, in praising Millicent's performance of the opera, had predicted for her a career, and had thoughtfully quoted instances of well-born amateurs who had become professionals and made great names on the stage. Millicent knew that all Bursley was talking about her, and yet the family life was unaltered. No one at home seemed to be much impressed, not even Ethel, though Ethel's sympathy could be depended upon. Millie was still Millie, the youngest, the least important, the chit of a thing. At times it appeared to her as though the triumph of that ecstatic and glorious night was, after all, nothing but an illusion, and that only the interminable dailiness of family life was real. Then the ruthless and calculating minx in her shut tight those pretty lips, and coldly determined that nothing should stand against ambition. I do hope you will pass, said Leonora, cordially to Rose. You 
You certainly deserve to. I know I shan't unless I get some outside help. My brain isn't that sort of brain. It's another sort. Anyone has to knuckle down to these wretched exams first. Leonora did not understand her daughter. She knew, however, that there was not the slightest chance of Rose being allowed to go to London alone for any length of the period, and she wondered that the Rose could be so blind as not to perceive this. As for Millicent's vague notions, which the child had furtively broached during her father's absence, the more Leonora thought about them, the more fantastically impossible they seemed. She changed the subject. The repast, which had commenced with due ceremony, degenerated into a feminine mess, hasty, informal, counterfeit. That elaborate and irksome pretense that a man is present, with which women, when they are alone, always begin to eat, was gradually dropped, and the meal ended abruptly, inconclusively, like a bad play. Let's go for a walk, said Ethel. Yes, said Millie, let's. Mama, Millie called from the drawing-room window. Leonora was walking about the misty garden, where little now remained that was green, save the yews, the cypresses, and the rhododendrons. Bran, his white and fawn coat glittering with minute drops of water, plodded heavily and content by her side along the narrow, damp paths. He was dressed for driving, and awaited Carpenter with the trap. In reply to Leonora's gesture of attention, Billy, instead of speaking from the window, ran quickly to her across the sodden lawn. And Minnie's running was so girlish, simple and unaffected that Leonora seemed by means of it to have found her daughter again, the daughter who had disappeared in the adroit and impudent creature of the footlights. He was glad of the reassurance. Yes, Mr. Twemlow, Mamma, said Minnie with a rather embarrassed air, and they looked at each other while Bran frowned in glancing upwards. At the same moment, Arthur Tremlow and Ethel entered the garden together. The social atmosphere was rendered bracing by this evasion of the masculine. Every personality awoke and became vigilantly itself. We met Mr. Tremlow on the marsh mother walking from Oakcastle to Bursley, said Ethel, after the ritual of greeting, and so he brought him in. As Leonora was on the point of leaving the house, the situation was somewhat awkward, and a slight hesitation on her part showed this. You're all going out, he said. Oh, Mamma, Millie cried quickly, do let me go and meet Father instead of you. I want to. What, alone? Leonora exclaimed in a kind of dream. I'll go too, said Ethel. And suppose you have the horse down. Well, then we'll take Carpenter, Millie suggested. I'll run and tell him to put his overcoat on and put the back seat in. She scampered off. Tremlow was fondling the dog with an air of detachment. In the fraction of an instant, a thousand wild and disturbing thoughts swept through Leonora's brain. Was it possible that Arthur Tremlow had suggested this change of plan to the girls? Or had the girls already noticed with the keen eyes of youth that she and Arthur Tremlow enjoyed each other's society and naively wished to give her pleasure? Would Arthur Tremlow, but for the accidental encounter on the marsh, have passed by her home without calling? If she remained, what conclusion could not be drawn? If she persisted in going, might not he want to come with her? He was ashamed of the preposterous inward turmoil. And my shopping? She smiled, blushing. Give me the list, Mater, said Ethel, and took the Morocco book out of her hand. 
Never before had Leonora felt so helpless in the sudden clutch of fate. She knew she was a willing prey. She wished to remain, and politeness to Arthur Tremlow demanded that this wish should not be disguised. Yet what would she not have given even to have felt herself able to disguise it? How incredibly stupid I am, she thought. No sooner had the two girls departed than Tremlow began to laugh. Ha, I must tell you, he said, with candid amusement, that this is a plant. Those two daughters of yours calculated to leave you and me here alone together. Yes, she murmured, still constrained. Miss Millie wants me to talk you round about her going in front of the stage. When I met them on the marsh, of course, I began to pay her compliments, and I just happened to say that I thought she was a born comedian. And before I knew it, I was blindfolded, handcuffed, and carried off, so to speak. This was the simple, innocent explanation. Oh, how incredibly stupid, stupid, stupid I was, she thought again, and a feeling of exquisite relief surged into her being. Mingled with that relief was the deep joy of realising that Ethel and Millie fully shared her instinctive predilection for Arthur Tremlow. Here indeed was the supreme security. I must say my daughters get more and more surprising every day, she remarked, impelled to offer some sort of conventional apology for her children's unconventional behaviour. They are charming girls, he said briefly. On the surface of her profound relief and joy, there played like a flying fish the thought, was he meaning to call in any case? Was he on his way here? They talked about Aunt Hanno, whom Tremlow had seen that morning and who was improving rapidly. But he agreed with Leonora that the old lady's vitality had been irretrievably shattered. Then there was a pause, followed by some remarks on the weather, and then another pause. Bran, after watching them attentively for a few minutes as they stood side by side near the French window, rose up from off his haunches and walked gloomily away. Bran, Bran, Tremlay cried. It's no use, she laughed. He's vexed. He thinks he's been neglected. He'll go to his kennel and nothing will bring him out of it except food. Come into the house, it's going to rain again. Well, the visitor exclaimed familiarly. They were seated by the fire in the drawing-room. Leonora was removing her gloves. Well, she repeated, and so you still think Millie ought to be allowed to go on the stage? I think she will go on the stage, he said. You can't imagine how it upsets me even to think of it. Leonora seemed to appeal for his sympathy. Oh, yes, I can, he replied. Didn't I tell you the other night that I knew exactly how you felt? But you've got to get over that, I guess. You've got to get on to yourself. Mr. Mart told me what he said to you. So Uncle Meshach has been talking about it, too, he interrupted. Why, yes, certainly, of course, he's quite right. But he's bound to go her own way. Why not make up your mind to it and help her and straighten things out for her? But... Look here, Mrs. Stanway, he leaned forward. Will you tell me just why it upsets you to think of your daughter going on the stage? I don't know. I can't explain, but it does. She smiled at him, smoothing out her gloves one after the other on her lap. It's nothing but superstition, you know, he said gently, returning her smile. Yes, she admitted. I suppose it is. He was silent for a moment, as if undecided what to say next. He glanced at him surreptitiously, 
and took in all the details of his attire. High white collar, the dark tweed suit, obviously of American origin, the thin silver chain that emerged from beneath his waistcoat and disappeared on a curve into the hip pocket of his trousers, the boots with their long pointed toes. His heavy moustache and the smooth bluish chin struck her as ideally masculine. No parents, burst out. No parents can see things from their children's point of view. Oh, she protested, there are times when I feel so like my daughters that I am then. He nodded. Yes, he said a bad thing his position at once. I can believe that. You're an exception. If I hadn't sort of known all the time that you were, I, I wouldn't be here now talking like this. It's so accidental, the whole business, she remarked, branching off to another aspect of the case in order to mask the confusion caused by the sincere flattery in his voice. It was only by chance that Mary had that particular part at all. Suppose she hadn't had it. What then? Everything's accidental, he replied. Everything that ever happened is accidental in a way, and another it isn't. If you look at your own life, for instance, you'll find it's been simply a series of coincidences. I'm sure mine has been. She had chance from beginning to end. Yes, she said thoughtfully, and put her chin in the palm of her left hand. And as for the stage, why, nearly everyone goes onto the stage by chance. It just occurs, that's all. Moreover, I guarantee that the parents of 50% of all the actresses now on the boards began by thinking what a terrible blow it was to them that their daughters should want to do that. Can't you see what I mean? He emphasised his words more and more. I'm certain you can. She signified assent. It seemed to her, as he continued to talk, that for the first time she was listening to natural, convincing common sense in that home of hers, where existence was governed by precedent and by conventional ideas and by the profound parental instinct which meets all requests with a refusal. It seemed to her that her children, though to outward semblance they had much freedom, I'd never listened to anything but no. No, dear. Of course you can't. I think you had better not. And once for all, I forbid it. She wondered why this should have been so, and why its strangeness had not impressed her before. She had a distant, fleeting vision of a household in which parents and children behaved like free and sensible human beings, instead of like the virtuous and the martyrized puppets of a terrible system called acting for the best. And she thought again what an extraordinary man Arthur Tremlow was, strong-minded, clear-headed, sympathetic, and delightful. She enjoyed intensely the sensation of their intimacy. Jack will never agree, he said, when she could say nothing else. Ah, Jack, he slightly imitated her tone. Well, that remains to be seen. Why do you take all this trouble for Millie? he asked him. It's very good of you. And because I'm a fool, a meddling ass, he replied lightly, standing up and stroking his toes. You aren't, or I said you are a dear. No, he went on in a serious tone. Millie just wanted me to speak to you, and after all, I didn't see why I shouldn't. It's no earthly business of mine, but... Oh, well, good-bye, I must be getting along. Have you got an appointment to, to keep? she questioned him. No, not an appointment. Well, then you will stay a little longer. The trap will be back quite soon. Her voice seemed playfully to indicate that, 
as she had submitted to his domination, so must he must submit now to hers. And if you'll excuse me one moment, I will go and take off this thick jacket. Up in the bedroom, as she removed her coat in front of the pier glass, she smiled at her image timorously, yet in full content. Minnie's prospects did not appear to her to be practically improved, nor could she piece out of Arthur Tremlow's conversation a definite argument. Nevertheless, she felt that he had made her see something more clearly than heretofore, that he had induced in her, not by logic, but by persuasiveness, a mood towards her children which was brighter, more sanguine, and even more loving than any in her previous experience. She was glad that she had left him alone for a minute, because such familiar treatment of him somehow established definitely his status as a friend of the house. Listen, Tremlow, said Stanway loudly, I meant to run down to the office for an hour this afternoon, but if you'll stay, I'll stay. That's a bargain, eh? John had returned from London blusterously cheerful, and Tremlow stood in the centre of his vehement, noisy hospitality, as in the centre of a typhoon. He consented to stay, because the two girls, with hair blown and still in their wet mackintoshes, took him by the arm and said he must. He was not the first guest in that house whom the apparent heartiness of the host had failed to convince. Always there was something sinister, insincere and bullying in the invitations which John gave and in his reception of visitors. Hence it was perhaps that visitors did not abound under his roof, despite the richness of the table and the ordered elegance of every appointment. Women paid calls. The girls, unlike Leonora, had their intimates, including Harry. But men seldom came, and it was not often that the principal meals of the day were shared by an outsider of either sex. Arthur's presence on a second occasion was therefore the more stimulating. It affected the whole house, even to the kitchen, which indeed usually vibrates in sympathy with the drawing-room. In Bessie's vivacious demeanour as she served the high tea at six o'clock, might be observed the symptoms of the agreeable excitation which all felt. Even Rose unbent, and Leonora thought how attractive the girl could be when she chose. But towards the end of the meal, it became evident that Rose was preoccupied. Leonora, Ethel and Millicent passed into the drawing-room. John pulled out his immense cigar-case, and the two men began to smoke. Come along, said Stanway, speaking thickly with the cigar in his mouth. Papa, said Rose ominously, just as he was following Tremlow out of the door. She spoke with quiet, cold distinctness. What is it? Did you inquire about that? She paused. Oh, yes, Rose, he answered rapidly. I inquired. It seemed a very clever woman, I must say, but I, I've been thinking it over and I've come to the conclusion that it won't do for you to go. I don't like the idea of it. You in London for six weeks or more alone. You must do what you can here. And if you fail this time, you must try again. But I can stay in the same lodgings as Sarah Fuge. The house is kept by a cousin or some relation. Well, then there's the expense, he proceeded. Father, I told you the other night I didn't want to put you to any expense. I've got thirty-seven pounds of my own, and I will pay. I prefer to pay. Oh, no, no, he exclaimed. Well, why can't I go? he demanded bluntly. I'll think it over again, but I don't like it, Rose. I don't like it. But there isn't a day to waste, father, she complained. Bessie entered to clear the table. Oh, well, I'll think it over again. He breathed out smoke and departed. Rose set her lips hard. 
He was seen no more that evening. In the drawing-room, Stanway found Tremlow and Millicent talking in low voices on the hearthrug. Ethel lounged on the sofa. Leonora was not present, but she came in immediately. Let's have a game of solo, John suggested. And, because five was a convenient number, they all played. Tremlow and Millie were the best performers. Minnie's gift for card-playing was notorious in the family. Do you ever play poker? Tremlow asked, when the other three had been beggared of counters. No, said John Corsley. Not here. That's lots of fun, Tremlow went on, looking at the girls. Oh, Mr Tremlow, Millie cried. It's awfully gambly, isn't it? Do teach us. In a quarter of an hour, Millie was bluffing her father with success. She said that in future she would never want to play at any other game. As for Leonora, though she lost and gained counters with happy equanimity, she did not like the game. It frightened her. When Millie had shown a straight flush and scooped the kitty, she sent the child out of the room with a message to the kitchen concerning coffee and sandwiches. Won't Millie sing? Tremlow asked. Certainly, if you wish, Leonora responded. Aye, let's have something, said Stanway lazily. And when Millicent returned, she was told that she must sing before eating. She sang, Love is a plaintive song, to Ethel's inert accompaniment. And she gave it exactly as though she'd been on the stage, in all the dramatic action, all the freedom, all the allurements, which she had lavished on the audience in the town hall. Very good, said her father. Like that, very pretty. Didn't hear it the other night. Tremlow merely thanked the artist. Leonora was silently uncomfortable. After coffee, both the girls disappeared. Tremlow looked round and then spoke to Stanway. I've been very much impressed by your daughter's talent, he said. His tone was extremely serious. It implied that, now the children were gone, the adults could talk with freedom. Stanway was a little startled and more than a little flattered. Really? he questioned. Really? said Tremlow, emphasising still further his seriousness. Has she ever been taught? Only by a local teacher up here at Hillport, Leonora told him. She ought to have lessons from a first-class master. Why? asked Stanway abruptly. Well, Tremlow said, you never know. You honestly think our voice is worth cultivating? John demanded, impelled to participate in Tremlow's gravity. I do, and not only her voice. Ah, Tremlow mused. There's no first-class masters in this district. Why, I met a man from Manchester at the Five Towns Hotel last night, said Twemlow, who comes down to Knipe once a week to give lessons. He used to sing in opera. They say he's the best man about, and that he's taught a lot of good people. Ah, I forget his name. I expect you mean Cecil Corfe, Leonora said cheerfully. She'd been amazed at the compliance of John's attitude. Ah, yes, that's it. At the same moment there was a faint noise at the French window. John went to investigate. As soon as his back was turned, Tremlow glanced at Leonora with eyes full of a private amusement which he invited her to share. Can't I just handle him? he seemed to say. She smiled, but cautiously, lest she should disclose too fully her intense appreciation of his personality. Why, it's the dog! Stanway proclaimed, and went through! What's he doing, Louis? It's raining like the devil. I'm afraid I didn't fasten him up this afternoon. I forgot, said Leonora. Oh, my new rug! 
ran, plunged into the room with a glad, deafening bark, his tail thwacking the furniture like the flat of a saw. Get out, you great brute, Stanway ordered. And then on the step he shouted into the darkness for Carpenter. Twemlow rose to look on. I can't let you walk to the station tonight, Twemlow, said Stanway, still outside the room. Carpenter shall drive you. Yes, he shall, so don't argue. And while I was about it, he may as well take you straight tonight. You can go in the buggy, there's a hood to it. When the time came for departure, John insisted on lending to Twemlow a large, driving overcoat. They stood in the hall together while Twemlow fumbled with the complicated apparatus of buttons. Stanway whistled. By the way, he said, when are you coming in to look through those old accounts? Oh, I don't know, Twemlow answered, somewhat taken by surprise. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send you copies of them, eh? Oh, I think you needn't trouble, said Twemlow carelessly. I guess I shall write to my sister and tell her I can't see any use in trying to worry out the old man's finances at this time of day. However, Samuel repeated, I'll send you the copies all the same. And when you write to your sister, will you give her my kindest regards? The whole family, except Rose, came into the porch to bid him good night. In the darkness and the heavy rain could dimly be seen the rounded form of the buggy. The cop's flanks shone in the glittering ray of the lamps. The carpenter was hidden under the hood. His mysterious hand raised the apron, and Tremlow stepped quickly in. Good night, said Ethel. Good night, Mr. Tremlow, said Minnie. Be good. You'll see us again before you leave, Tremlow, said John's imperious voice. You aren't going back to America just yet, are you? Leonora asked from the back. No reply came from within the hood. Mother says you aren't going back to America just yet, are you, Mr. Tremlow? Minnie screamed in her trouble. Arthur Tremlow showed his face. No, not yet, I think, he, he called. Uh, see you again, certainly, and thanks once more, said Carpenter. The next evening, after tea, John, Leonora and Rose were in the drawing room. Millie had run down to see her friend Sissy Burgess, having with fine cruelty chosen that particular night, because she happened to know that Harry would be out. Ethel was invisible. Rose had returned with bitter persistence to the siege of her father's obstinacy. I should have six weeks clear, she was saying. John consulted his pocket calendar. No, he corrected her, you would have only a month. It isn't worth while. I should have six weeks, she repeated. The exam isn't till January the 7th. But Christmas, what about Christmas? You must be here for Christmas. Why? demanded Rose. Oh, Rosie, Leonora protested, you can't be away for Christmas. Why not? the girl demanded again coldly. Both parents paused. Because you can't, said John angrily. The idea's absurd. I don't see it, Rose persevered. Well, I do, John delivered himself, and let that suffice. Rose's face indicated the near approach of tears. It was at this juncture that Bessie opened the door and announced Mr. Tremlow. I just called to bring back that magnificent great court, he said. It's, it's hanging up on its proper hook in the hall. Then he turned specially to Leonora, who sat isolated near the fire. She was not surprised to see him, because she had felt sure that he would at once return the overcoat in person. She had counted on him doing so. As he came towards her, she languorously lifted her arm without rising. The two bangles which she wore 
slipped tinkling down the wide sleeve. They shook hands in silence, smiling. I hope you didn't take cold last night, she said at length. Well, not I, he replied, sitting down by her side. He was quick to detect the disturbance in the social atmosphere, and though he tried to appear unconscious of it, he did not succeed in the impossible. Moreover, Rose had evidently decided that despite his presence, she would finish what she had begun. Very well, father, he said. If you'll let me go once, I'll come down for two days at Christmas. Yes, John Grumble, that's all very well, but, but, but who's to take you? you? You can't go alone. You know perfectly well that I only came back yesterday. He recited this fact precisely as though it constituted a grievance against Rose. As if I couldn't go alone, Rose exclaimed. If it's Sarah London you're talking about, Emily said, I'll be going up tomorrow by the midday flyer and would look after any lady that happened to be on that train and would accept my services. He glanced pleasantly at Rose. Oh, Mr. Twemlow, the girl murmured. It was a ludicrously inadequate expression of her profound, passionate gratitude to this night, but she could say no more. But can you be ready, my dear? The inquired. part. I am ready, said Rose. Oh, it's understood, then, Romero said later. We shall meet at the depot. I, I can't stop another moment now. I've, I've got a cab waiting outside. Dear Honora wished to ask him whether, notwithstanding his partial assurance of the previous evening, his journey would really end at Euston, or whether he was not taking London en route for New York. But she could not bring herself to put the question. She hoped that John might put it. John, however, was taciturn. We shall see Rose off tomorrow, of course, was her last utterance to Tremlow. Leonora and her three daughters stood in the crowd on the platform of Knipe Railway Station, waiting for Arthur Tremlow and for the London Express. John had brought them to the station in the wagonette, had kissed Rose and purchased her ticket, and had then driven off to a creditors' meeting at Hambridge. All the women felt rather mournful amid that bustle and confusion. Leonora had said to herself again and again that it was absurd to regard this absence of Rose for a few weeks as a break in the family existence. Yet the phrase, the first break, the first break, ran continually in her mind. The gentle sadness of her mood noticeably affected the girls. It was as though they had all suddenly discovered a mutual, unsuspected tenderness. Millie put her hand on Rose's shoulder, and Rose did not resent the artless gesture. I hope Mr. Tremlow isn't going to miss it, said Ethel, voicing the secret apprehension of all. I shan't miss it anyhow, Rose remarked defiantly. Scarcely a minute before the train was due, Millie described Tremlow coming out of the booking office. They pressed through the crowd towards him. Ah, exclaimed genially, here you are, baggage labelled. You thought you weren't coming, Mr. Twemlow, Millie said. You did? I was kept quite a few minutes at the hotel. You see, I only had to walk across the road. We didn't really think any such thing, said Leonora. The conversation fell to pieces. Then the express, with its two engines, its gilded luncheon cars, and its post office van, thundered in, shaking the platform, and seeming to occupy the entire station. It had the air of pausing nonchalantly disdainfully, in its mighty rush from one distant land of romance to another, in order to suffer for a brief moment the assault of a puny and needlessly excited multitude. 
We'll stop Williston, yelled the porters. Second, Doctor, turned sharply, catching the luncheon car attended by the sleeve. You've got two seats reserved for me, Tremlow? Uh, Tremlow, yes, sir. Come along, he said, come along. The girls kissed at the steps of the car. Goodbye. Well, goodbye all, said Tremlow. I hope to see you again sometime, say next fall. You surely aren't, the Aurora began. Yes, he resumed quickly. I sail Saturday. Must get back. Oh, Mr. Twemlow, Ethel and Minnie complained together. Rose was standing on the steps. Leonora leaned and kissed the pale girl, madly, pressing her lips into Rose's cheek. Then she shook hands with Arthur Twemlow. Goodbye, she murmured. I guess I shall write to you, he said jauntily, addressing all three of them. And Ethel and Millie enthusiastically replied, Oh, do! The travellers penetrated into the car and reappeared at a window, one on either side of a table covered with a white cloth and laid for two persons. Oh, don't I wish I was going? Millie exclaimed, perceiving him. Rose was now flushed with triumph. She looked at Tremlow, her lips moved, she smiled. She was a woman in the world. Then they nodded and waved hands. The guard unfurled his green flag. The engine gave a curt, scornful whistle, and lo, the luncheon car was gliding away from Leonora, Ethel and Minnie. Lo, the station was empty. I wonder what he will talk to her about, thought Leonora. They had to cross the station by the underground passage and wait twenty minutes for a squalid, shambling local train which took them to Shawport at the foot of the rise to Hillport. End of chapter 7